Welcome to the podcast of the University of Massachusetts Amherst History Department's 2016-2017 Family Distinguished Lecture Series, The U.S. in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Today, October 17, 2016, we broadcast a lecture by award-winning historian Talita LaFloria titled Chained in Silence, A History of Black Women and Convict Labor. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and welcome. Uh, I'm Brian Ogilvy, uh, Chair of the History Department here at UMass Amherst. And this afternoon, it is my privilege to welcome you to the 2016 Distinguished Lecture uh, in the UMass Five College Graduate Program in History, uh, which will be delivered by Professor Talitha LaFloria of the University of Virginia. Uh, it's not my job to introduce her. It's my job to say something about the lecture and then introduce her introducer. Uh, so uh, let me just uh, be as brief as possible. Every year, our distinguished lecture celebrates the establishment in 1996 of the UMass Five College Graduate Program, which combines the faculty and resources of the Commonwealth's flagship research university with those of four of the nation's leading liberal arts colleges, uh, Amherst, Hampshire, Mount Holyoke, and Smith Colleges. This collaboration provides our graduate students with a depth of intellectual resources second to none, while allowing faculty at the colleges to contribute to the formation of historians uh, in development. Beginning in 1997, with a lecture by Bonnie Smith of Rutgers University, our annual lecture brings the community together to hear a distinguished historian speak about their scholarship. Past lecturers have included Roger Launius, Glenda Gilmore, Eric Foner, Natalie Zeman Davis, and Edward Baptist. Uh, and we are very pleased to welcome Professor LaFloria to their distinguished company. This year, we are also fortunate that the distinguished lecture dovetails with our biennial Feinberg family lecture series, an endowed series that focuses on a topic at the intersection of history and public policy. The inaugural series commemorated the 50th anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And this year's theme is the U.S. and the Age of Mass Incarceration, a significant and timely uh, subject. The Feinberg semester activities are possible thanks to the generosity of Mr. Kenneth R. Feinberg, a 1967 alumnus of the UMass History Department, together with his family and friends. Mr. Feinberg completed his BA in history and went on to a distinguished career in law and public service, uh, most notably uh, serving as special master of the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. Um, let me invite you now to the next event in the series. Uh, on Wednesday, October 26th, we will host a panel discussion on resisting police violence in Springfield and beyond, mothers, scholars, and queer people of color speak out, uh, featuring Kisa Owens, the mother of Delano Walker, Andrea Ritchie, uh, an attorney, writer, and Shorosh Justice Fellow, Shay Shay Quest of Out Now, uh, Maria Ververis, the mother of Michael Ververis, uh, and Rhonda Y. Williams, a scholar and community activist. This event will be held at 7 p.m. at Shibeli Hall Auditorium at Springfield Technical Community College down in Springfield. Uh, let me also invite you to participate in the series social media. Uh, there's a Facebook page, and our Twitter hashtag is uh, hashtag Feinberg series. Uh, there is a children's table uh, uh, at the back of the room for those of you who may have a restless child with you, uh, so uh, that's available as an option. Uh, if there are a few sounds from back there, we uh, ask for your indulgence. Uh, there will be a book signing uh, uh, after the talk at the back of the room, uh, so please don't rush the lectern. Uh, uh, Nat Herald of Amherst Books is back there with copies of the book, uh, and uh, Professor LaFlorio will be available to sign it afterwards. And now, uh, to underscore that we truly are a UMass Five College program, I'm very pleased to introduce my colleague, uh, Professor Chris Tinson of Hampshire College, uh, where he teaches Africana Studies and History. Professor Tinson, who is a PhD graduate of the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies here at UMass Amherst, will introduce tonight's speaker. So please join me in welcoming him. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, honored to be alive in this moment where we can all struggle collectively. So I want to make some brief remarks to give context to mass incarceration and to welcome our distinguished guests. The critical social theorist 
and Afrofuturist Janelle Monet once said, this is a cold war, you better know what you're fighting for. Consider the following. Longtime political prisoner Mumi Abu-Jamal is, is committed to a slow death row in one of America's fine penal institutions. There's still a $2 million bounty on Asada Shakur. Jalil Montekin is still in the Attica dungeon. And so Albert Woodfox was just released after 43 years in solitary confinement in Angola, one of America's most notorious plantation prisons. These are but snapshots of the over 2.3 million people in US prisons, 5 million extra under state supervision, and an additional 12 million coming in and out of American jails on an annual basis. A cold-blooded war, if there ever was one. This adds context to why hunger strikes, labor strikes, and other coordinated actions have hit at least 29 prisons in at least 12 states in the past month, but we haven't taken these actions seriously. We'd rather watch the massive distraction known as the DT Circus. Donald Trump. As police across the country continue shooting, killing, harassing, and bullying their way into black and brown lives with impunity, and the eager bullets of racists continue to chase down black and brown bodies, young, old, Muslim, church-going, what have you, we are making history. At no other point in U.S. history have we had as much information about prisons as we do currently. The question becomes, what do we do now that we are beginning to know? This society's carceral continuum is coming into greater focus. And yet it is painful for some to realize that imprisonment and other anti-black violence is inseparable from capitalism. The same people and institutions that benefit from capitalism are the same people and institutions that benefit from imprisonment. Capitalism means distinctions must be made, and those distinctions are always political. Considering this, it may be more apt for us to update the widespread usage of prison industrial complex as a term describing our current state, and might we update it to call it capitalist penal democracy. Call it what you will, the show must go on. Standing firmly in the tradition of black resilience, healing, and resistance, the movement for black lives, and the new scholarly work coming out on the vast and largely hidden history of carceral democracy gives the mobilizing work new urgency. Its policy document calls for nothing short of an end to the forces that destabilize black life. So, my friends, the Feinberg series is not only a series of lessons in history, it is an activist-rooted intellectual challenge to the logic of the carceral state. The social theorist and prison abolitionist Joy James contextualized our current state as one locked in between grief and action. As she states, the implications of public servants and deputized vigilantes violating black life with impunity are profound, especially for young black people. Police agencies have a history of racial bias and racial violence that has been investigated and condemned by governments as well as civil and human rights organizations. Citizens, she continues, are supposed to flee or fight criminals, not the police, but reality and history teaches you that in black life, you need be ever vigilant for both. Later she adds, what is black death in American society and under American democracy, but a political phenomenon? We are troubled by current black sufferings fueled by the new Jim Crow or neo-slavery in a punitive mandate. Yet our language is rarely considered political when we speak of these challenges challenges and the fragmentation that dismembers the beloved community that King promised we would see from the mountaintop. The current uptick in historical attention on imprisonment from Dr. LaFleur's timely and important book, Chained in Silence, to Ava DuVernay's recent Netflix release, The 13th, to Naomi Murakawa's new book, The First Civil Right, How Liberals Built Prison America, is promising and long overdue. 
And it should not go unnoticed that women scholars and artists are leading the charge in this effort. So long as this work is tied to efforts to restore communities hard hit by the carceral state, it will not be in vain. The work of restoration is accompanied by the work of excavation, especially the histories of ritualized and racialized gendered violence and resistance experienced by US-based black women in the New South. Digging up lost or unknown histories of racial violence, their attended state-sanctioned silences, and the absence of reparative justice must be our collective work. It is this work that our distinguished guest has begun with force. Dr. Talitha LaFuria is an associate professor of African-American studies in the Carter G. Woodson Institute at the University of Virginia. She's the author of Chained and Silenced Black Women and Convict Labor in the New South, which was featured in the Sundance Award documentary, Slavery by Another Name, based on Douglas Blackness Pulitzer Prize winning book on convict labor in the Southern States. Currently, she serves on the board of directors for the Labor and Working Class History Association and Historians Against Slavery. Please join me in giving a warm five college welcome to Dr. Talithia. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you so much for that very generous um, introduction. I'm truly honored to be here and would like to extend major thanks to the coordinators of this wonderful event for inviting me to join you to share some of my insights on the history of black women's imprisonment and experiences of state-sanctioned violence in the United States. It's no secret to anyone in this room that America is in a state of emergency. The black body count is rising. The carceral crisis is still unresolved. Hatred is ravaging our hopes and the future seems bleak. And while images of black men litter our Facebook feeds and haunt us in our freedom dreams, black women and girls remain nearly invisible. Ironically, however, black women and girls today are just as hyper-visible to police as they were during the post-emancipation period and they are equally vulnerable to state-sanctioned anti-black violence and the predations of the carceral state. And the culture of silence that exists around these issues is no less pervasive and perpetual now than it was in the past. Sadly, the overemphasis on the plight of the black male in the U.S. injustice system and their experiences of state-sanctioned anti-black violence has resulted in the obscuring of black women and girls' experiences of mass imprisonment and violence. The black female has been left suffering on the margins. Although black women's experiences of police violence and their relationship to the carceral state has been very similar to black men, their cries have been and are still being drowned out amid the deafening defense of black manhood. The devaluing and quote deadening of black womanhood to borrow from historian Kali Gross's turn of phrase is no doubt the result of white supremacy, sexism and patriarchal dominance. But I wonder how much of this victimization is being spurred on or even emboldened by the outright ambivalence that is frequently shown to broken black female bodies. I ask myself often, why is it that black women and girls' lives don't matter? Although frequently overlooked, ignored, or disengaged in broader public and historical conversations on the subject, the black female has been adversely affected by mass incarceration and state-sanctioned violence since the moment, again, emancipation was legally recognized in the South the place where I argue the roots of black female and male mass incarceration were initially planted. When we use the past as a window into the present, it becomes clear that today's crisis is merely a continuation, not a new development per se, but part of a long-standing practice that has been with us again since the end of the Civil War. My recently published book, Chained in Silence, Black Women and Convict Labor in the New South, 
uh, was written as a corrective to the male-centric, uneven rendering of the history of convict leasing in the chain gang system. It was my way of moving working class incarcerated black women and girls' lives, labors, travails, and fleeting triumphs from the margin to the center of historical and historiographical discourse for the historians in the room, um, accounting for the prominent role they played in rebuilding the physical and economic infrastructure of the South um, again after the Civil War. Off the grid, tucked away in flying railroad camps, brickyards, chain gangs, lumber mills, mines, plantations, stockades, kitchens, wash houses, barns, and big houses, thousands of African-American women prisoners live, labored, suffered, and died. Yet their lives are nearly in, impossible to trace in writing from the post-Civil War era, and they still remain largely outside the historical literature's field of reference due to their limited numbers and or overarching perceptions about the reduced, their reduced profitability when compared with black men, or from limitations wrought by the scarcity of historical evidence. Um, nowhere is this absence most deeply felt than in the masculinist realm of convict labor studies where a woman's worth is least regarded. It is within this historiographical space of convict labor studies that women prisoners' contribution to the forging of New South modernity has tended to be measured in terms of productivity and profit alone. While my study has shown that black female convicts did in fact supply a rich source of labor and profit to Southern industrialists, there are other considerations to be made in our assessment of a woman's worth to the postbellum carceral state. From an institutional perspective, for instance, the black female presence helped foster significant changes to the penal system of New South Georgia and was the catalyst for early prison reform movements. Economically speaking, African-American women prisoners executed new forms of labor that remained untried in the free labor marketplace, therefore broadening the overall scope of black women's work in the post-emancipation South. These facts, among others, make it difficult to deny that gender is significant to the study of convict labor in the post-Civil War South. It has become quite clear to me that without the female perspective, it is difficult to grasp the complexities of this history. The reality is that incarcerated women experienced captivity in uniquely gendered ways. For them, life in a convict lease camp or on a chain gang was in many ways worse than slavery, for reasons that extend beyond their decline in material worth after the collapse of slavery or the excessive violence that followed. Unlike their male counterparts, imprisoned women were much more privy to sexual assault, pregnancy, and what I like to call menacing reproduction. The decline in African-American women's procreative worth also made their laboring bodies susceptible to new forms of reproductive exploitation. All things considered, it's my firm belief that it is the inclusion of women in the historical discourse that best complicates the static notion that convict leasing was nothing more than slavery by another name. While it is true that convict labor systems replicated the cycles of violence, brutality, exploitation, and bodily commodification found in plantation slavery, it is through the female lens that we are best able to see the ways in which black female maternity was reviled in a way that it hadn't been before emancipation. Whereas in the old South slaveocracy, reproduction was the linchpin for slaveholders' financial success, the new South fiscal model saw pregnancy and childbirth as threats to economic progress and productivity. Hence, children born to incarcerated mothers had no fiduciary value, and these disposable bodies were prone to death and disappearance. So it is these types of subtle variances um, between slavery and convict labor that reveal the rich gendered nuances that underlie the female experience of captivity. But African-American women's unique experiences of involuntary servitude in the postbellum South does not stop there, but is also reflected in their laboring practices, gendered experiences of violence, and resistance techniques. In mapping the origins of black female mass incarceration, again, one must begin in the post-Civil War South, where the highest concentration of black female incarcerees once resided. 
In the aftermath of emancipation, white Southerners made undermining black freedom and reasserting white supremacy a major priority. The suppression of black freedom was first codified in state-sponsored black codes and vagrancy laws that severely restricted freed people's social, economic, and political mobility, in the case of black men, and regulated black life. White Southerners also utilized physical assault, rape, and lynching as a means to control freedom and movement, to dissuade freed people and their offspring from becoming independent economic actors, to stymie educational and political progress, to perpetuate fear, and most importantly, to reassert white supremacy. In my attempts to graphically underscore the disposability of African-American life, and the unrestricted nature of violence visited upon black female victims during this period, I'd like to defer to the case of a young woman named Sarah Neely. As reported by anti-lynching activist and Memphis native Ida B. Wells, Neely, quote, a colored girl, was arrested for, quote, some trumped up charge and forced to labor on an Alabama prison farm. The day after her arrival at the farm, she was bucked and, quote, stretched across a log, her clothing drawn up, and while her hands and feet were being held by Negroes, presumably by force, the white guard, who was the son of the planter, gave her 100 lashes with a buggy trace. But the beating did not stop there. Neely was then handcuffed, her feet tied together, and a rope put around her neck and drawn up until her toes barely touched the ground. She was kept in this condition from 10 a.m. until 12 o'clock noon when she was released and crawled away. She was, quote, afterward ordered to go to work. But being unable, the guard beat her on the head and jumped upon her stomach. Before 3 o'clock, she was dead, end quote. And there's no evidence in the historical record that points to anyone being charged for her murder. So in many ways, Sarah Neely is today's Sandra Bland, in my opinion. Like violence, the penal system was a highly potent weapon used to suppress black autonomy and spur the redevelopment of the South's post-war economy and infrastructure. Ironically, it was a clause in the 13th Amendment to the US Constitution the amendment that legally abolished slavery that actually allowed for the disproportionate arrest and incarceration of African-American men, women, and youth. The amendment declared that, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. With a system of chattel slavery no longer in place, white Southern businessmen came to rely on the state as a new supplier of, quote, prison slaves. Southern state governments and motivated industrialists exploited the constitutional loophole and capitalized on the growing pool of long-term felony offenders who could be used to work in newly formed industries and prison camps while at the same time reviving the region's war-torn economy. Through convict leasing, a system that permitted private contractors to lease felony inmates from the state, and assumed total control over their welfare and working bodies, Southern entrepreneurs were able to build their fortunes on the backs of black prisoners, women included. In the state of Georgia in particular, which is um, the site of my research, the first spike in black female mass incarceration occurred between 1868 and 1880. The second spike occurred between 1881 and 1908, the year convict leasing was abolished in the state and the chain gang system decentralized. During these years, African-American women made up 3% of the total felony population and roughly 5% of the short-term misdemeanor chain gang population, but they made up more than 98% of the female prison and jail populations overall. In terms of their alleged crimes, roughly 90% of long-term female felons were convicted of burglary and violent crimes such as murder, attempted murder, manslaughter, assault, and arson. Oftentimes, their crimes were occasioned by a need or a desire to self-defend against abusive uh, fathers, lovers, and spouses. For those women and teenage girls who were convicted of non-fatal violent crimes, their prison terms were rarely set below five years. But over 75% of convicted murderesses, as they were called, were actually sentenced to life imprisonment. If a woman found herself imprisoned in a convict lease camp, she could expect to be worked 12 to 14 hours a day doing any combination of the following. Grading surfaces for railroads, laying tracks, mining clay, firing bricks, building roads, digging ditches, smelting iron, chopping down trees, harvesting turpentine, 
plowing fields, hoeing weeds, and picking crops. Female inmates had, excuse me? Oh, sorry. Female inmates had the added burden of cooking meals, cleaning camp kitchens, laundering acres of soiled linens and garments, or even working as the private servants of leasees, wardens, or other penal authorities. Misdemeanor chain gang women, on the other hand, primarily built roads. In Georgia especially, uh, gender conventions were routinely disregarded due to the vast array of industries that emerged in the state following the Civil War, which precipitated the indiscriminate use of male and female felon labor. Unlike today's system of imprisonment, which primarily generates profit through, warehouse, through the warehousing of bodies as opposed to labor exploitation, the penal regimes of the industrially driven New South Capital heavily relied on the energies of incarcerated workers, again, women and girls included, for its economic growth and viability. It is only when we look at the less familiar narratives of the imprisoned female labor force that we gain a complete picture of the occupational responsibilities and burdens held by Southern black women whose work has been widely understood in binary terms. Most scholars have contended that during the post-emancipation period, the rigorous limitations placed on black women's work forced them into two distinct professional categories, agricultural or domestic service. Yet within the convict lease and chain gang systems of Georgia, African-American women's working roles were much more variable. Um, ironically, the mutability of Georgia's carceral structure expanded the possibilities of black women's labor in the New South while simultaneously immobilizing female detainees. The barriers that had impeded ex-bond women and their daughters from moving beyond the field and domestic service were unsuitable to Georgia's penal enterprises. Hence, I've come to conclude that African-American women's presence within the state's industrially driven convict lease and chain gang systems helped modernize the postbellum South by actually creating a new and dynamic set of occupational burdens and competencies for black women um, that had not been previously tested in the free labor market or allowed in the free labor market. The precarious work arrangements that evolved in Georgia's post-war prison camps were a partial derivative of the Old South plantation regime. In the antebellum period, planters established a promiscuous pattern of utilizing female slaves in masculine modes of field labor. The most, quote, athletic members of the female sex were sometimes forced to dig ditches, cut trees, and haul lumber. Although the convict leasing paradigm embodied some tenuous aspects of plantation slavery, including the ungendering of bondwomen's labor to satisfy fluctuating financial and work-related needs, leasees decisively prioritized heavy manual work as the status quo, not the exception. And much of this had to do with the decline of black women's reproductive worth after slavery. So in the New South penal economy, a dramatic shift occurred whereby conviction as opposed to conception became a, the principal method used to grow bound labor forces. Leasees, unlike slaveholders, had no financial incentive to preserve the fertility of their rented chattel and cared little if women were rendered sterile or suffered gynecological complications as a result of the extreme and heavy labor they were forced to perform. Georgia's railroad system was actually the first industry to um, experiment with the use of black female prison labor. In 1869, less than one year after assuming sole proprietorship over Georgia's felons, the Atlanta-based contracting firm um, Grant, Ale Grant Alexander and Company had in its possession 17 female inmates, all of whom were former slaves. Born into bondage, Mary Brooks enjoyed three years of freedom before she was restored to a lifetime of involuntary servitude. In March 1868, at the tender age of 16, she was um, convicted of murder by a Bartow County judge and sentenced to natural life in the walls of the state penitentiary, where she and 12 other women worked as cooks, washerwomen, and seamstresses. One year later, Brooks and her co-laborers traded in their sewing machines, cooking utensils, and wash tubs for pickaxes, carts, and shovels. By 1874, roughly 32 women had been, quote, farmed out to the Macon and Augusta, Brunswick and Albany, and airline railroads. In these railroad camps, female convicts did the same kind of work as men did in the cuts, as it was called, where they graded surfaces for railroads, drove carts, and shoveled dirt. 
In the absence of modern technology, the work had to be done by hand in a time-consuming process that required great physical strength and dexterity that many women did not have. Graders milled miles of terrain, while cart drivers helped load large pieces of rock and debris in a wheelbarrow, then rolled it up the dirt rock heap of the cuts. The tough grind of railroad construction lasted from sunup to sundown, leaving female prisoners desperately exhausted and unable to churn out more labor. Weak women workers were sometimes flogged and hit with rocks that would, quote, knock them speechless as a means of stimulating greater productivity in the workplace. In 1892, the entire female prison population in the state of Georgia was uprooted and replanted in Elbert County. At the Camp Herdmont Prison Plantation, which you see cycling around, there's a sketch and it says, um, Queer Colony of Female Convicts. Um, that's actually a sketch of Camp Herdmont. This is a place uh, which was actually the first centralized female prison camp in the state of Georgia. Um, all of the female prisoners in the entire state were leased to one leasee, and his name was William Henry Maddox. And he employed a three-tiered approach to convict leasing, which was industrial, agricultural, and domestic in nature. So on his prison plantation, women prisoners plowed fields, sowed crops, paddled through rivers of cotton, felled trees, sawed lumber, ran grist mills, ginned cotton, forged iron, cooked meals, cleaned camp quarters, and washed soiled garments. Eliza Randall, a convicted murderess, was the chief engineer at the camp, and she was put in charge of running the grist mill and doing half of the blacksmithing for the farm. Over a dozen other women were forced to work as lumberjacks and to assemble a small-scale lumber mill for commercial and domestic purposes. Now, lumberjacking was an extremely dangerous and unsparing occupation, ordinarily restricted to strong practice um, men. Inexpert at the trade and in many instances, again, lacking the physical power to fell the trees or maneuver their limp torsos, female convicts were often severely wounded. Some were crushed by falling logs, while others were dismembered by misdirected axe blades or aggrieved by the pain of dislocated bones and muscle tears. Rose Henderson understood firsthand the dangers lurking in the pine forest. On March 19, 1896, the lumberwoman was, quote, hurt by a falling tree and laid up in the camp hospital for six days before being driven back into the forest. In a similar instance, 44-year-old Sarah Johnson was nearly crushed to death by a falling tree. After the incident, she spent close to one month convalescing in the camp infirmary. Now, as it pertains to the plight of misdemeanor offenders, most African-American women and girls who are forced to do time on chain gangs, having been charged with petty crimes such as larceny or vagrancy, were rendered terms that usually lasted anywhere from three months to one year. But the degree of labor one was required to perform within this time frame and the amount of violence an individual likely experienced was disproportionate to one's otherwise short sentence. Chain gang operators compressed years of work, um, labor into these compact terms, and if a worker, young or old, sick or able-bodied, failed to meet the labor demands imposed on her, she was, quote, whipped with a rawhide till the blood ran down. To be clear, in multiple localities throughout the carceral South, women worked like men and were beaten like men. There was no regard for their gender position, and the only time their femininity or womanhood was invoked was when they were raped. Unfortunately, um, antebellum notions about the unrapeability of black women were superimposed onto the postbellum legal landscape, allowing white men to sexually terrorize African-American women uh, prisoners unchecked by the law. But even floggings and, boardings, uh, excuse me, floggings and beatings themselves frequently bordered on the sexual. Female captives were often whipped, quote, stark naked in the presence of male onlookers. So, um, there are many reports and investigations um, that reveal how um, convicts saw, male convicts saw other female convicts being whipped naked and they will report to the investigative committee of Georgia and this is how this information you know, was ascertained. The technologies of terror deployed against incarcerated black women and girls varied according to the whims of the abuser. Some were crammed into sweatboxes, which you see a picture um, of a sweatbox circling around, while others were fastened into bucking machines, which you also see um, pictured up here. 
And these devices served as high-tech substitutes for the traditional practice of bucking, where a female uh, victim, often partially or completely nude, was forced to lay bound across a log where she was brutally flogged with the whip. These whippings were frequently carried out in the presence of others uh, to set an example, to invoke fear, and to demonstrate the consequences that were sure to befall any individual who dared test the rude power of the law. One of the most illustrative examples that comes to mind, which vividly um, highlights the ferocity with which female prisoners were handled, is found in the case of 18-year-old Lizzie Boatwright. On March 1, 1897, Boatwright was convicted in the Superior Court of McDuffie County, Georgia, for the crime of burglary and sentenced to serve six months on a local chain gang. On the word of the judge who ruled in her case, Boatwright and another young woman were, quote, found in possession of certain articles of clothing that had been stolen from a house near the Georgia Railroad. When confronted, the teenager swore that the four or five dollars worth of garments, quote, had been given to them by a boy, and they held no involvement in the robbery whatsoever. But their pleading was in vain. Out of options, the pair agreed to, quote, take a verdict of guilty with a recommendation that they be punished as for misdemeanors. They were each sentenced to pay a fine of $50. Okay, so during that time period, that was quite a bit of money. And if you were poor, um, usually you weren't able to accrue the money unless you family members gathered together and um, pooled their meager resources to get you out of, you know, buy you off of the chain. But in the case of Lizzie Bowright, her family didn't have the money, so she ended up having to serve out the sentence um, on the chain gang. She ended up serving six months on the chain gang. So a few weeks into her sentence, um, Boatwright was actually spotted by the special inspector of the misdemeanant um, convict camps who found her, quote, clad in male attire, wearing the same make of coat, pants, and shoes as were uh, worn by the male convicts. She was working as a man, the only difference being that she used a short-handled spade while the men used long-handled shovels, end quote. Initially mistaking her for a, quote, half-grown boy among the men, the inspector, quote, called her out from the gang and asked her how often she had been whipped, by whom, and how. She stated that the former guard, Bob Cannon, whipped her and another, quote, Negro woman twice for trivial offenses. In one instance, the women were flogged, quote, because our feet were sore and we stopped on the side of the road to fix the rags so as to protect them from the heavy brogan shoes we were wearing. Mr. Cannon made me take down my britches and lean over and then he whipped me, said Boatwright. She continued, the other convicts were all around us. One time when he started to whip me, I was sick with my monthlies and I told him so and begged him to take me away from among the men, but he cursed me and made me drop my britches and he whipped me there close to the men convicts, end quote. When I read Boatwright's um, story and when I read her story, her testimony, um, for the first time, I was both stunned and horrified by the details, just as many of you are. It's the same feeling I got in 2015 when I watched Charnisha Corley pouring out her heart to CNN anchor Don Lemon about a similar experience. On June 21st, 2015, Corley was stripped naked by a Texas sheriff's deputy and, quote, administered a cavity search of her genitals because of suspicions she was in possession of marijuana, end quote. After being pulled over allegedly, for allegedly uh, running a stop sign, a male and female officer took her around the side of the car, then the female officer told her to pull her pants down. Quote, I bent over and she proceeded to stick her fingers in me and I popped up immediately and I told her, no, what are you doing? You can't do that to me, Corley reported. I felt like they raped me, she said. I wish I could say that the parallels that exist between Corley and Boatwright, Sarah Neely, Sandra Bland, uh, all of whom are separated by time and space yet united in their pain is merely coincidence. Unfortunately, the reality is that when it comes to black women's experiences of state-sanctioned anti-black violence, there is little separation between the past and present at all. In fact, I would argue that the past is the present. The patterns of brutality that we're witnessing today is part of a long continuum that stretches from slavery to the present. Sandra Bland's death while in police custody, for example, along with the deaths of scores of other black women, some of whom have been named, others whose names still remain unspoken, is situated at the end of a long chain that links enslaved women who were raped, beaten, and killed by vicious overseers, slave patrollers, and planters, 
To those who were lynched in the Jim Crow South or brutalized, ravished and slain by whipping bosses, guards and leases in southern prison camps, to those who were sexually assaulted, pummeled with billy clubs and murdered during the civil rights movement, to those who are being savagely beaten, sexually assaulted and killed on a routine basis today. To be frank, we didn't just get here, we've been here all along, and the culture of silence that exists around these issues is equally unexceptional, it's perpetual. With that said, for as much as black women have been victimized historically and in the present, um, they have also struggled to resist. For example, just to go back for a moment to the chain gang and to the convict lease camps, within the confines of the South's prison camps, some incarcerated women ran away in hopes of securing freedom from overwork or to escape physical and or sexual abuse, while others set fires, physically resisted their abusers, and destroyed property. The act of burning clothes, for example, became one way in which some African-American women prisoners reclaimed their bodily integrity. So in this instance, they're sort of resisting this um, compulsory defeminization um, that they feared in the past, but also in the present, as we see in the case of the attack of the um, high school girl by the South Carolina resource officer who basically um, charged her like he was on a football field because he did not recognize her as a black girl. He, saw, he adultified her and also masculinized her all in the same terms. We see the same thing when we look at Sandra Bland being wrestled to the ground and um, you know, extreme force being applied to women. So this, this sort of compulsory defeminization of black women started really in this post-emancipation context and it also visits us or is present with us today. So for the sake of context, um, let me just go back to this point about the burning of clothes. It's important to note that the demeaning assault on black femininity through dress and labor was actually one of the many uh, methodologies, and violence, was one of the many methodologies used to punish female captives, reinforce racial subordination and gendered inferiority, um, and to offset the strides black women made to have their womanhood acknowledged after the Civil War. Prevailing notions of femininity and the security that, quote, proper women deserved were intertwined with whiteness and generally denied to women of color. White Southerner de Southerners disparaged freed women's attempts to what they called, quote, play the lady. Weighed down by imprisonment and all of its masculine accessories, Molly White and Nora Daniel were among, were among those who exhibited their frustrations by setting their garments ablaze at the Chattahoochee Brickyard. The whipping boss punished the young women on two separate occasions, rendering them 10 lashes apiece in each instance for burning shirts and burning clothes. Understanding their material value to the lessee and the intricate connection between uniforms and the production of labor, these female convicts were symbolically destroying the lessee's property to undermine orderly attempts toward reducing them into objects of, proper, uh, of profit and property and to satisfy an internal desire to have their womanhood and humanity recognized. In their attempts to undermine the carceral South, its architects, and the violence that it engendered, female inmates also engaged in more secret and subversive forms of protest. These women practiced the art of everyday resistance, a phrase used by historian Stephanie Camp to describe the covert acts of dissent and discreet ways of regaining control over parts of one's life, which in the carceral context included theft, working slowly or sloppily, or other forms of sabotage. In critiquing black women's experiences and realities with the postbellum carceral state and state-sanctioned anti-black gendered violence, we see that, again, there's merely a delicate thread separating the past and present. Hence, for those who are seeking to understand the present-day crisis in black female mass incarceration and anti-black violence, it is important that one look at it through the prism of the past because it is in this space the root is buried again. So sadly, the same factors that precipitated these issues then applies now. The nefarious social, economic, material, and legal conditions that beleaguered black women and some girls during the post-emancipation period have been restored to life in the nation's modern penal system. The common threads of racism, unemployment, poverty, educational disparities, domestic abuse, physical and sexual violence, and emotional trauma have helped create and reinforce black female criminality across time and space. Since the 1980s, the number of all women in prisons and jails has grown uh, by more than eight times, and roughly two-thirds of imprisoned women in the U.S. are women of color. 
Although new reports have actually pointed to the decline in rates of incarceration for black women, women of color are still disproportionately represented in female prison population totals. The war on drugs has resulted in the uneven incarceration of black female offenders who have become scapegoats of tough on crime rhetoric and targets of drug busting operations. Structural racism anchored in the rise of the prison industrial complex, a term used to describe the overlapping interests of government and industry that use surveillance, policing, and imprisonment as solutions to economic, social, and political problems and the denial of rehabilitative services or even jobs and other resources that could be um, created in lieu of funding more prisons excuse me, or even jobs and other resources that could be created in lieu of funding more prisons to warehouse more bodies results in the mass removal of people of color and people and poor people from society into, into institutional captivity. Sadly, these disappearing acts are equally prevalent among black girls and girls of color who are being funneled into the nation's juvenile injustice system through the school to prison pipeline. Last year, a report entitled Black Girls Matter Pushed Out, Overpoliced, and Underprotected was published as a means of addressing the erasure of black girls from public dialogue and to call attention to the exclusion of black girls from national initiatives on race, such as President Obama's um, My Brother's Keeper initiative, which was introduced last year, I believe, to address opportunity gaps faced by boys and young men of color. Right now, as the rate of incarceration for black women is seemingly decreasing, the rate of incarceration for black girls is actually skyrocketing. As lawyer and legal scholar Priscilla O'Chin denotes, the invisibility of black girls from public discussion and advocacy is not a sign that they're doing okay or are immune to the effects of racism and patriarchy. Black girls, like black boys, are equally criminalized, adultified, and excluded from the protections of childhood. According to the Black Girls Matter report, the rate of discipline and punishment for black girls is nearly 10 times higher than it is for white girls. The authors of the report also make other observations in regards to the plight of black girls and girls of color in America's schools. For example, it was found that black girls and boys are subjected to larger achievement gaps and harsher forms of discipline than their white um, counterparts. The authors also determined that increased levels of law enforcement and security personnel within schools sometimes make girls feel less safe and less likely to attend school. Likewise, the application of punitive rather than restorative responses to conflict contributes to the uh, separation of girls from school, leading to their disproportionate involvement in the juvenile injustice system. School-aged black girls experience higher incidences of interpersonal violence, often in the home, which adversely affects their ability to finish school. The failure of schools to intervene in situations involving the sexual harassment and bullying of girls contributes to their insecurity at school, and the list goes on and on. And while there is some progress on the horizon as it pertains to addressing the very pressing issues black girls and women face within our prison nation, there is still a lot of work uh, that needs to be done. But in order to do the work, we must become tired first. So in closing, I want to draw on part of a quote from Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. There comes a time when people get tired. If you will protest courageously and yet with dignity, when the history books are written in future generations, the historians will have to pause and say, there lived a great people who injected new meaning and dignity into the veins of civilization. Building on King's vision, it is my personal hope that when the history books are written in future generations, that future historians will pause and say, there lived a great people, not just a black people, but a great people, a human family that was willing to fight together for justice and who won. And that because of their valiant efforts, future generations could have a chance at a brighter future and hope <coughs> excuse me, was restored to those who were never given the opportunity uh, to dream in the first place. So I'll stop there.
Yeah, that's a really great question, and um, it's actually one of the aspects of my study that remains chained in silence. It was very difficult to um, really figure out what happened to these children beyond disappearance and death. Um, I have I found many instances of um, babies being drowned in the river, being quote unquote um, born dead, or um, in one report I remember reading them saying. Um, quote unquote, we give some of the bastards away. Um, but this was particularly in Georgia, which was very um, production driven. Now, the picture that you saw of, um, with the woman holding the baby, that was, this is actually at the Wetumpka um, prison in Alabama. This was the women's prison. In places like Alabama and even in Mississippi, there wasn't this like um, sense of, I guess, not just undermining black female maternity, but this investment in like, you know, getting rid of um, the disposables, which were the children. They actually let women keep their babies with them, um, which was quite remarkable. And a lot of the information that I found about that, you know, came from um, Mary Ellen's book, Mary Ellen Curtin's book, Black Prisoners in the World. So she does talk about how women were actually able to perform like motherhood and care for their children within um, the confines of the prison camps. But in Georgia's convict lease and chain gang systems, that is one area where I never really found an instance of women being able to nurture. I remember, I will never forget it, reading about one woman, um, Eliza Randall, and I write about her in the book, who was the, in, the um, chief engineer at the Camp Herdmont prison farm and blacksmith. But what I didn't mention in my talk is that when she came to Camp Herdmont, she was nine months pregnant. And she had run off with a prison guard from a different camp where she was. The prison guard was white. She became pregnant with his child. He was incarcerated. She was reincarcerated, sent to Camp Herma with all the other women prisoners. She was nine months pregnant. And then um, a month later, you know, there's no baby. And she was working as a blacksmith. And she was the only one forced to wear like men's garb in the camp because she was a flight risk. She had run away from other camps. So they wanted to make sure that she was dressed in a way where she could be easily identified if she tried to run away. Well, I actually um, got in contact with one of the descendants of William Henry Maddox. And he was writing a book on Maddox. And he told me that you know he found records where <laughs> Maddox gave the charge to um, the whipping bosses that if the women you know, gave birth to go drown them in the river. So yeah, so that's the kind of stuff that I was able to, um, to look at, to find, but I didn't really see a whole lot about like motherhood and performing motherhood and take, caring for children and any value assigned to children in my study. Oh, sure. Yeah, I was just wondering if um, in your research you found, <laughs> um, I was wondering if in your research you found any um, examples of how the communities that these women came from reacted to common policing, like whether it was something that wasn't talked about or they were ashamed about it or if there was a solidarity. Just wondering what Yeah, it's interesting because most of the, um, of what I was able to find had to do with how black female um, reformers in particular, or black you know, reformers responded to the issues that um, incarcerated women, or incarcerated people in general, were faring within the convict labor camps. But in terms of um, the communities, like you know, everyday people and what their opinions and their thoughts were, besides what was being published in you know, the black press, or what progressive reformers were writing, um, I wasn't able to really get at that. Um, so that's actually a really great question. Um, it would be nice to find, like I looked high and low for you know, diaries, but you're dealing with a semi-literate population. 
Um, and I would imagine that there may be some like oral histories in place, perhaps, but I wasn't able to to find that. Um, and I also wasn't even I wasn't able to track or trace these women's um, steps beyond captivity. So I think that that's also important. You know, somebody needs to try to maybe reconstruct the lives of some of those women who did make it out and made it out alive. If we could kind of like figure out what happened to them after the fact, that's another very important question. So um, there are still like some silences, right, in the, in the narrative and a lot of work to be done. But I think that that's, that's a terrific question. Oh, oh sure. So, uh, I was wondering, um, in the early 1900s, you had this protagonism uh, of women on the, on the struggle against um, the, the violence, the, the anti-black violence. You, you have a married to appearing in a school for black girls in Florida. And I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about if you could uh, attach this protagonism to the harassment of um, black women. Okay, well, what is the last part of your question? I'm sorry, if I could attach. If you could relate uh, the rest of black women with the, this protagonism in the struggle in the early 1900s. Um, no, if you could kind of clarify the question a little okay, bit, that would be nice. Uh, Thank you. See. I gave the example of Mary uh, Batum uh -huh. that she should have a school in the mm -hmm. Right. And, and then you have uh, women um, having protagonism in the struggle against uh, black violence, against. Uh, Violence against uh, African Americans in the early 1900s. So, I was wondering if you could relate uh, this protagonism. Protagonism? With, okay. With, with uh, the, the complete labor with the um, uh, black women being arrested in that time. Yeah, um, well. <laughs> In Georgia in particular, which is the site of my study, you don't have, um, besides what, you know, women who are part of the National Association of Colored Women are doing to help, you know, improve the livelihood of, of black women in this space, um, you don't have, like, reformatories or spaces where girls are specifically um, placed and women placed in a separate site. So. At the state prison farm in Georgia, um, there was a separate reformatory that was built for where boys, you know, were sent, primarily white boys and a handful of black boys. Most black boys uh, were still working on chain gangs. So there were some efforts, right, among, you know, black club women to try to create, you know, safe spaces for um, black girls in particular. Um, but. I don't necessarily see that happening. You don't have black, like reformatories being established by black women for black girls in Georgia, but you do have it in Virginia. You do have it in Florida. I've seen it in Alabama. I've, I haven't seen it in Mississippi. And I've also seen it in Tennessee. So it does happen. Um, just for some reason, it doesn't happen in Georgia. But the reformers are doing things to try to facilitate, to put in place educational systems so that girls don't find their way into um, these prison camps.
Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there were, like, during the period of slavery, slavery in and of itself was a site of incarceration. The, the plantation in and of itself, or wherever enslaved people were confined, was a site of incarceration, I believe. So that did the work of, you know, incarcerating people. So you had a very small population of black people who were sent to jails um, during this time period. But they were, and even sent to prison. Um, uh, I think about some of the capital murder sort of uh, cases of like Celia. And I think about, yeah, so you have these instances where, you know, um, black women or black girls are sent to prison or even given, you know, the death sentence and, and hung. But after emancipation, I mean, it's the numbers skyrocket because they have to create a system to effectively suppress the social, political, and economic mobility of formerly enslaved people. And they also need to find a way to extract labor you know, from these people. And so the whole industrial, um, you know, prison industrial complex of the post-emancipation period was predicated upon utilizing black um, convict labor. So they had to create criminals. Um, and so whether it meant arresting people for trumped up charges, giving people disproportionate sentences that were disproportionate to what they were actually arrested for, they had to create that um, criminal class in order to fulfill their fiscal desires, much like the prison industrial complex today. I don't know. It's so interesting because um, that's a histor that historically that has been done. Um, black women, you know, have always protested on behalf of black men. When you think about anti-lynching campaigns, you know, like think about Ida B. Wells. You know, think about those black club women. Those movements were oftentimes spurred by black women in defense of black men. Um, but unfortunately, you know, oftentimes women become sort of marginal. Um, even in our own attempts to rescue black men. Yes, black men are being incarcerated in, num in numbers that, are, that far surpass black women. Yes, men are victimized by state-sanctioned anti-black violence and in numbers that are far surpassing the black men. But for me, I'm, I'm, I'm not invested in the numbers. I'm invested in lives. So um, I don't know why that is, but that is just a historical problem that's, you know, in the in the process of trying to correct something, you're you're messing it up at the same time. So no. And there are only a handful of you know black women scholars or historians who are like, hello, hey, you know, say your name. So that's essentially what, where the Say Her Name campaign came from. You know, when Kimberly Crenshaw, um, Priscilla Ochin, and these other, you know, black feminist scholars who were like, hey, hold up, wait a minute, you know. But nobody even talks about Say Her Name anymore. Like, don't, they don't even talk about this initiative. It's all about Black Lives Matter. But um, for some reason, you know, black women and girls' lives still don't matter. So I don't know. Yeah, so that's very much a um, Doug Blackman question because he actually does sort of trace some of that in his book because he I didn't write about debt peonage in my work, um, but I did write about um, the prison plantations. The prison plantations, people lived and labored on those sites, you know, year year round. Because I'm mostly invested in the experiences of women, 
um, it would mean that I would need to sit and actually crunch all the numbers for male, you know, prison plantations, because I actually write about sex-segregated prison plantations. So I would need to sort of recover some of these other, you know, plantations to sort of debt peonage farms in particular to see how that worked. Because prison plantations and debt peonage, um, the prison plantation economy was separate from the debt peonage system, if that makes sense. They were two, um, they were very similar, but they were actually very different. So I believe um, Doug Blackman's conclusions about the fact that, you know, yes, people were kidnapped and people were, you know, nabbed up during particular parts of the, of the season when they needed more laborers to harvest the crop. Um, and so, and there were a lot of people who never made it off of those prison farms because that was one site in which people actually were essentially re-enslaved. So just because we don't need you anymore. Well, just because the work has been done doesn't mean that you get to leave, per se. I know that uh, some people need to leave, uh, and uh, many of you also would like to uh, put a sign in the back of your reception. So I think we have time for one more question. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm curious about when black women get into the program. I'm sorry. Uh, that's a good question. The state actually um, hired prison camp physicians, and so there was one principal physician who was in charge of all of the prison physicians who were situated at all of the respective camps throughout the state. So every um, prison camp had um, a physician on the premises, and that was, you know, a way for them to, you know, practice, perfect some of their... Um, botched up medical procedures um, and so my next book is actually all about that the um, penal medical economy that emerges around sick dying disease and dead incarcerated black bodies um, and how those bodies also had a fiduciary value so that that's the long answer to your question yeah. well thank you all for